The title of today's message is Tea Party Time and is found in the book of Luke, chapter 20, verses 20 through 26. Let's pray and ask God to guide and direct us in our study this morning of his precious word. Father, we thank you for the Bible, holy writ, holy scripture, the word of truth, the word of life. Help us, Father, to believe in it, to trust in it, to love it, to consume it, help it to be our passion, our very lives, for in it are the promises of God. We thank you, Lord, for it. Now help us to understand it, to interpret it correctly, to apply it rightly to our lives, we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite Beatle recordings is from the Revolver album. Maybe you remember it. The song is entitled, Tax Man. It was written by George Harrison in 1966 as a personal attack on Britain's super tax, which is imposed upon the wealthy, the high wage earners. His inspiration came after all these taxes were imposed on him as he acquired his new wealth. He later mused in a book, I wrote this song after discovering the huge amounts of my monies which were going directly to the British tax man. At first, I was just happy to be earning money, but then I found out that most of it was being taken away in taxes. This super tax, which upset Harrison, amounted to 5 to 38% of high earners' wages. But this was over and above all the other taxes that were imposed on the British people. This tax, however, was not placed on those who inherited their wealth, only the wage earners. The end result was that those who generated income could pay up to 98% of their income in taxes. Listen to the lyrics. I think it might surprise you that this was written by one of the Beatles. Yeah, I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. Should 5% appear to 
Now all of you want to go home and drag out your Beatle albums, right? <laughs> this song tells us just how the Novo rich felt about paying a progressive social agenda for a progressive social agenda. Those who had been blessed with newfound wealth like Harrison began to pay an exorbitant amount of tax compared to the old wealthy. This bothered the the entertainment industry so much, you can take his face down, I don't want to look at it, Uh, bothered the entertainment industry so much that they actually moved away from England. The Beatles moved, the Who moved, the Rolling Stones moved, they went to Canada or the United States, and even to the south of France, which was tax-friendly at that time. They became known as tax exiles. Now, I don't know if you're tuned in to the politics of our day, but just last Tuesday was what's called Super Tuesday of the primary election season. The headlines focused on how much or how little influence the Tea Party would have on the election results. A few days ago, I interviewed two of our college students that were helping out in the office, thank you, about what they knew of the Tea Party. Listen to what they said. This is Memorial Day on Sunday, right? Mm-hmm. Monday. Okay, mind if I ask you a couple questions? Okay. Um, do you know what the Tea Party is? Yes. What is it? Isn't it like a big battle? It was a political thing between... Um, was it... We're breaking out from the British... Right? Yeah, Revolutionary War? Yeah. Do you remember what they did with the tea? They, they dumped, dumped it. it. Threw it overboard. Okay, mm-hmm. now there's a new entity called the Tea Party. Have you heard of that today? I've heard of it. Do you know what it stands for? Was it standing? I'm just taking a guess um, about, oh my gosh, kind of like being independent of, like from, like the other parties, like the Republicans and Democrats. Sort of, but not really. Okay. It's an independent party that stands for a limited government mm-hmm. and for the government to pay its bills and not to borrow money and to obey the Constitution. Mm. So, thanks. Appreciate yeah. it. What are you girls up to, by the way? Calls. Making calls. Advertising for PBS. Sounds great. Thank you very much. Now, as full disclosure and transparency that you want from your pastor, you should know that I've attended all the Tea Party rallies at our local state house in Olympia. I personally identify with the Tea Party's agenda and purposes. You should know, however, that there's no official Tea Party membership because it's not a political party. The Tea Party is not Republican nor Democrat. It's an ideological movement. It's Desire is to return to the Founding Fathers' principles of limited government, physical responsibility, individual freedom, free market capitalism, a strong national security, and traditional values. Now, the talking heads on television assert that the Tea Party has been diminished in these past few weeks because the candidates that identified themselves as Tea Party candidates have lost. However, the media has never chosen to really understand what the Tea Party is about. It's not about electing individuals to political office. Rather, it's about influencing public policy. 
It wants the country to return to its conservative principles, its governing Judeo-Christian principles. I often wonder to myself, how could anyone who actually believes in the Bible disagree with the principles that are found in the founding documents, such as our Constitution and Declaration of Independence? I, as I hope you do, support Judeo-Christian principles, as does the Tea Party. Now, this is met with great opposition, of course, in the public discourse out there because it conflicts with a progressive social agenda. We see this example in our current administration, which has exploded the national debt and created deficits that will run into the next century and will be paid by our grandchildren. More explicitly, the current administration has enlarged and expanded on the entitlement state through unfettered programs like welfare, food stamps, dis- disability, and many other programs of various sizes and shapes. The net effect has been this. The development of a dependent class has happened in our citizenry. The results of that is their dependency has been brought about by political bribery. It's a quid pro quo. This for that. An entitlement for your vote. Yet all of these dependency programs must be paid for by someone. The monies must come from somewhere, and the only place it can come from is the public largesse. The money will be paid either now or someone in the future, by someone in the future. Now, during the first century, Rome controlled the entire known world. The Romans, despite their conquering ways, did many good things for the people. They coined monies. They built a worldwide road system. They connected the continents with one another. They brought about a lasting peace called Pax Romano. They brought about law and order and stability for the people. The nation of Israel enjoyed all of these benefits which Pax Romano offered, but it came with a price, taxes. The Israelites chafed under the Roman rule and under the Roman tax system. One of the things that... uh, they hated most was the imposed head tax upon them. They were expected, if you would, if you will, to live and pay their taxes under this brutal regime. Just like the American colonies of the 1700s also chafed under the control and the tax system of King George. This, of course, had its result in the War of Independence. What one thing did the patriots resent the most? The tax system and its unjust Uh, penalty of them as uh, subjects living in a faraway land. They imposed taxes on them, uh, such as the Stamp Act, the Tea Tax, and uh, the Poll Tax, just like the Romans imposed on their citizens. So British subjects have been complaining about this since the 1700s. Hence we see George Harrison's song because he resented what was called a poll tax or a super tax in the 60s. Well then, with that as our introduction, would you turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 20 and verse 20, where we pick up on this subject of taxation by the government on page 1049 of the Pew Bible. Now, if you've been here with us for the past few weeks, you've watched as Jesus has traveled from the Galilee all the way down to Jerusalem. Ostensibly, he's made his way to the city of Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Jewish Passover and the feast which followed it. 
But we know he's come to do more than that. He's come to fulfill his Father's will. He will die on the cross for the sins of mankind, and he will rise from the dead, conquering sin, death, and the grave. And the religious leaders who opposed him were certainly willing to help him make his way there, if possible. They were on a jihad to kill him, but they'd been unable to accomplish their stated goal. The question is why? Why were they unable to get Jesus? Mostly it's because the religious elites were afraid of the people, which we've seen over and over in the book of Luke. So they decided to go in a completely different direction. Instead of outright hostility and accusations brought against Jesus, they were going to try to butter him up and catch him in their little trap. So they decided to use flattery to get Jesus to sort of drop his guard. And once his guard was down, then they would ensnare him in a question that he couldn't or wouldn't answer. As you recall from previous texts, Jesus had just finished catching his accusers on the horns of a dilemma. It was one of their own making, but they couldn't answer his question, so they left silently. Now, or then, he turned to his audience and he explained the hypocrisy of the religious elites through a parable, the parable of the vine growers. And uh, that parable highlighted the evil intents of the vine growers or the religious elites and that they wanted to destroy God's prophets and God's son and take over uh, the religious system and make it their own for their own reasons and aggrandizement. So the religious elites understood the parable of Jesus. They understood that it was Jesus making a point about them to the common people, but they did nothing because they were afraid of the folks. It's just like today, however. Many people in the church miss what is really happening in the larger church and how the church is being compromised by those who are out just to make money. They're for their own self-aggrandizement. So then, as Jesus was teaching in the temple, the religious leaders came to him once again, as we read in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 20. They watched him. They watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement, so that they could deliver him over to the rule and the authority of the governor. Clearly, Jesus is under surveillance, but not by the National Security Agency, but something a lot more sinister. He's under the proverbial microscope of his enemies who watch his every move. Their hope was to catch him in some theological misstep or maybe a political misstatement that they could then report him to Rome. Clearly, it says they watched him. Now, the they, the pronoun there, refers to the religious leaders of Israel. It states that they, the religious leaders of Israel, hired spies and they sent them to do their will. The word used here in translated spies, by the way, speaks of someone who was hired to lie in wait and to ambush a victim. Back in the Old Testament, that term spies was used as an idiom of premeditated murder. These men had one task, and that was to mask their evil intentions, what they were really there for, by pretending to be honest and sincere, and then catch Jesus in some faux pas that they might report him to the governor and have him killed. 
In the Gospel of Mark, we learn, because it tells about this same event, who are in that delegation that was sent by the religious leaders of Israel. Apparently, two sects formed a committee, as Mark tells us in chapter 12 and verse 13, saying, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap in a statement. So, by this, we learn that these two sects, who had wildly divergent belief system, came together because they had a mutual enemy. They set their differences aside, those things that separated and divided them, in order to get Jesus. For you see, the Pharisees were the conservatives of their day, while the Herodians were the staunch liberals. The Pharisees were the right-wingers, if you will, while the Herodians were the left-wing extremists. But they came together to kill a common enemy. There's a well-known proverb that says, The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's exactly what is coming to happen here. It's sort of like if this took place today, it would be the ACLU joining hands with the Christian coalition. Or Rush Limbaugh getting together with Nancy Pelosi to accomplish some task. So the religious elites send these spies in to see if they could catch Jesus and hang him. They came and they listened to him patiently and politely. They did this as a smokescreen so that they could accomplish what their purpose was of trying to entrap him. They pretended to be sincere and to be honorable in their religion. They respectfully asked Jesus questions. They pretended to have questions of conscience. Oh, this is really bothering me, Jesus. Maybe you could help me with it. They were there to seek his advice. Right. But we know that they really came with nefarious intentions. They wanted to be able to accuse him of some crime because he said this or did that. Since the ruling body over all of Israel is that Sanhedrin, which had no power to execute a person, they had to catch him in some crime that the Roman governor, who is Pilate, would be able to punish him for. We read in verse 21 that they questioned him. Teacher... Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly. And you are not partial to anyone, but you teach the way of God in truth. Wow, the honey just is dripping off of their words, isn't it? These men came to catch Jesus, but they used sweet talk. They begin their questioning of Jesus with flattery. Notice they address him as teacher despite the fact that they never, ever would accept his teaching. They flatter him by saying that his teaching is right on, spot on, Jesus. They assert that he is correctly teaching the way of God, even though they disagree with it completely. They affirm that Jesus is a teacher who has never been partial. He's impartial to all. They extol him for telling the truth, not the hypocrites that they were. Jesus never told one group one thing and another group something completely different like many of our politicians do today. In essence, they affirm Jesus for who he is and his character. He doesn't lie, but he teaches the truth of God. And that was great. But of course, they were totally insincere. They were hypocrites. They hated Jesus. And they hated him because of the things he did. He ate with the Pharisees. But he also ate with the hated tax collectors. Jesus showed no partiality, 
But they did, because they were hypocrites. And yet they used this flattery, thinking that they could disarm the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed that their flattery, their sincere appearance, would get him to let down his defenses. Yet it was that very quality, his speaking the truth, that caused his enemies to seek to want to kill him. Jesus wasn't like them in any way, shape, or form. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, and the experts in the law, they all prided themselves on one thing, their ability to adapt to circumstances. They could make the best of anything. They could adapt to any political environment. They survived many different forms of uh, foreign occupations, and yet they always prospered because they were so flexible. They were willing to compromise for their own good. Right now, they really liked the status quo because they were making lots of money at the temple, selling partridges and lambs and exchanging coins. They didn't want to change, and here was this change agent, Jesus. So they were willing to compromise in order to get rid of Jesus. But Jesus was never, ever willing to compromise. What they perceived as a strength in themselves, the ability to be flexible and compromise, They would use then to ensnare him. They would fudge on the truth. They would fudge on the ability to take someone's life if it accomplished their goals. But they were also well aware that the people liked Jesus, that the people hated the Romans. And so they had to keep that in the back of their minds as they made their plans. So they employed a trap. And they were going to spring it on an unsuspecting Jesus when he let his guard down. They began by asking him the following question in verse 22. They've buttered him up, they've flattered him, and now they ask, "Um, Teacher, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They thought they had him trapped. Ah, we got him. He's not going to be able to get out of this one. You see, this is a quasi-political and a religious question all at the same time. It smacks of the problems we would call today the separation of church and state. These men pretending to be asking a question of conscience say, Jesus, is it legal for us as Jewish citizens to pay taxes to a pagan governor? Hmm. They believe they had him cornered. He must reveal himself in his answer to be one of two things, either a revolutionary or an accommodator. Now, notice the way they paint this exchange. They use the terms us against them. And they say, they ask, Jesus, whose side are you on? Are you on our side, the Jewish side who worship Yahweh, or are you on the Roman pagan side who worship a king, a false god? The term that's used here by Luke for taxes is for us, and it's different than the word that's used by Matthew and Mark, which a lot of commentators like to point out. Uh, the Greek term that Matthew and Mark use is kanos. But both terms refer to a head tax that was imposed by Rome on Jewish citizens. In some cultures, it's called a head tax. More to the point, it was a citizenship imposed on the Jewish citizens because they received the benefits that were provided by Rome. Uh, But the Jews hated this because it was 
forced on them by a Gentile governor, a Gentile king, if you will. And it was a tribute that was paid directly to him. The tax was required to be paid by every male between the ages of 14 to 65, and it had to be paid in Roman coinage. Coinage. It was also required of every woman between the ages of 12. I know we don't consider a woman at the age of 12 to be a woman, but they did, to the age of 65. And it was simply a tax for existing. So the poll of the head tax was separate from all the other taxes that were imposed. Customs taxes, personal property taxes. I don't know if they had a sales tax then, but if that they did, it would have been paid over and above this head tax. So the one thing that we need to understand is that there is no question of legality here since all people needed to respond and pay the tax that was rightly imposed on them by a government that provided them with many benefits. For some, though, in Israel, it raised the question of allegiance. To which kingdom are you aligned with? Are you aligned with the kingdom of God or the kingdom of a Roman pagan government? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of Rome? It also had embedded within it whose power is greater. Is the power of God or Yahweh greater or the power of the Roman czar, Caesar? They attempted to discredit Jesus as a teacher by forcing him to address this question in public. You see, if Jesus had answered the question no, thereby suggesting that it was unlawful to pay Rome a tax, he would have been arrested for sedition by the Romans. But if he would have said yes, they would have just seen Jesus as another zealot who was trying to rebel against the government. There were many in Israel who did want to have a revolution. They had had many such revolutions in the past. But if Jesus had yes, said yes, affirming the lawfulness of Jews paying tax to Rome, then the people would have viewed him as a compromiser. He would have been making an accommodation to Rome by paying them off by paying his taxes. If he had said no, he would have put himself at risk for being arrested. The regular people loathed paying taxes to the pagan oppressors. And for many, this tax was simply an insult to God. For he was their king, not Caesar. And many thought it was akin to breaking one of the commandments found in the Ten Commandments, that they are to make no graven images because it had to be paid with a Roman coin. The spies thought they had Jesus, another horn of dilemmas, if you will, horns of dilemma. It was his turn to be impaled on it. It was his turn to be seen by a hypo- as a hypocrite by the people. The tables had been so-called turned upon Jesus. If he b- forbade paying the taxes of the Romans, then he would be making a treasonous statement. If he affirmed paying the taxes, then he would alienate his support base. They would see him as just another false messiah. So how will Jesus escape this trap? His escape is brilliant. In fact, it's acknowledged by most people that the, his, his uh, thinking here, his methodology is uh, above anything could, that could ever have been expected. His escape from the dilemma was enabled by the fact, though, that he knew their evil motives. Look at me at verse 20, 23, where it says, but he detected their trickery. So how was Jesus going to get out of this? 
It's a brilliantly posed situation, question. They appeared to be sincere. All their words were stated just right. They sounded pious. But Jesus knew the evil intents of their hearts and minds. He could read their body language and their facial expressions. I remember when I was a kid, my mother would always say, Scott, Edward, Moffat, I can tell by your face that you're lying. Who is that woman? Deacons, usher her out. All the while they were feigning this false piety in order to snare, to lure him into their trap. You know, Christians are often caught in these same dilemmas. People come to them and they seem so pious and so religious and they seem to have all the right answers. Pulpits across America are filled with men who are devious, devious liars and filled with dead men's bones. These evil and wicked men want to ensnare the righteous in the webs of their deceit. Part of this passage serves as a warning to us today, my brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who come dressed in clothes of white righteousness, but they are simply ravenous wolves seeking to devour the flock of God. So the question is, how do you know the difference? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. They always make this demand. Show me the money! Now, you remember that from a recent film, don't you? When the, uh, when the uh, sports agent is, is told by his uh, sports personality to say that over and over, show me the money. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. It might be changed a little bit today, though. It would be, show me the Benjamins instead of the money. But Jesus, knowing their hearts and minds and seeing their evil intent, says to them, show me the denarius. Show me a a denarius. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with the Roman coinage system, which I'm surprised that you guys don't know what that is, but let me share with you... A denarius was the equivalent of an average worker's day's pay. Okay, you can see a picture behind me. And uh, it was a silver coin that bore the image of the Roman emperor. In this case, it was Tiberius. And uh, it wasn't the only coins in, in circulation. There were Greek coins, there were Syrian coins, and even Jewish coins. But the tax had to be paid in a Roman denarius. And you can see it bears the image of Caesar's head stamped upon it. The lettering that surrounds it does not say, in God we trust, no. It says, um, Tiberius Caesar, the son of divine Augustus. And on the reverse side of the coin, on most of them, it bore the image of Tiberius's mother, Livia. As you can see, is seated in a chair, and on it, it proclaims her to be the high priestess. And as I said, the Ten Commandments tells Jews that they are not to worship or make any graven images of other gods. So Jesus asks the delegation that has come to see him, to undermine him, to catch him in a track, to show me a Daenerys. He wanted them to take one of those coins out of their pocket. He knew what the coins said and whose image it bore. And in fact, he asks, whose likeness and inscription does it have? So one of the Pharisees or the Herodians reaches into his pocket and pulls out a denarius and says, Caesar's. Now the 
plural form of the reply there is very interesting. Look at the text. It says, they said Caesar's. So all of them at once, because they all used the coin. In unison, unthinking, they respond. And by doing so, they incriminate themselves before the watching crowd. They've acknowledged that they use the coin, which is imprinted with a graven image upon it. And the inscription that Caesar is God. This was Jesus' plan from the moment that he asked them to see, to show him a coin. He wanted them to admit that they use coinage with the picture of a human God and high priestess on it. You can't miss the hypocrisy. The ones who pretended to believe in the commands of the Old Testament were using the very coins that bore the image, graven image, of a false god. The point here is this, I believe. By accepting and using the coin, they accepted the obligations to pay the Roman tax. Jesus had turned the tables upon them. By using the Roman coins, they admitted that Rome had a right to issue currency and therefore impose its taxes upon them. If the emperor has the right to coin coins with his image, ipso facto, then he has the right to impose such taxes on those that use his coinage. So in a real sense, Jesus was implying, if you've accepted Caesar's currency and use it, then you are accepting Caesar's right to impose taxes upon you. The problem is, of course, that all Jews hated Rome. They resented Rome. They resented the taxes. And basically, they resented it for two reasons. It reminded them, every time they looked at it, that they were not a free nation. Secondly, the image of Caesar reminded them that they were under the rule of a pagan, a Gentile. And by using it, they acknowledged both of these realities. Now, Jesus wasn't finished with his lesson. He said to them in verse 25, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, many have struggled with an interpretation of the verse, this verse. It has been much discussed by theologians, and it has been understood in many various ways. The English word there, render, means to give in to someone's demands. It's a, the Greek word, apodidomi, which speaks of paying of what is due. Strong's defines it as a payoff, a discharge of what is due, to pay a debt, a wage, a tribute, a tax, to give things promised under oath or by conjugal duty. It was also imposed as a tax for the giving back or the restoring or recompense of another. So then, when these religious elites used those denariuses, which they acknowledged they did by having it in their pockets, they were acknowledging Rome's right to rule over them and to tax them. So was it lawful? So was it lawful for them to pay the tax? Obviously, Jesus is giving them a strong indication that they're already doing it, and therefore it is right. After all, they all enjoyed the privileges that the Roman government gave them. They had many benefits of a strong government, sound laws, a stable economy, and secure trade rights. It was only reasonable then for them to pay for such privileges. Jesus indicated his willingness to pay taxes. You recall that uh, he paid for a tax out of a 
the fish's mouth. Uh, he had uh, ate with tax collectors, and when you eat with someone, when you have fellowship with them, it's a sign of acceptance. He even appointed one of them, a Roman tax collector, to be his disciple. However, Jesus is not teaching that there's some kind of dichotomy in our worldviews. There's not one separate kingdom from another. There's not one civil kingdom from one religious kingdom. Jesus is not teaching that. His point is simply this. The government should be obeyed in the areas that God has given the government jurisdiction and that God should be obeyed in all areas, even the governmental areas. Jesus was not placing the government on equal footing with God by this statement. Jesus is teaching that the government has a legitimate role in our lives because God has ordained it to be so. In civil societies, if it's to function correctly, there must be a government. There must be ordained civil powers that bring peace and justice. So then, Jesus' argument to these Herodians and Pharisees, and for the people that we're listening to here is this. If Rome protects you and your civil rights and ensures justice and peace, then they have a right to tax you. It's only right. But then Jesus adds the phrase, what is due to God, render to God. He draws a red line of distinction here between what's due Caesar and what is due God. Unlike others who draw red lines which are meaningless, Jesus' red lines are real. No matter what the coins say, what images they bear, what inscriptions they have, what, no matter what banners they might have, and whose images and inscriptions they bear, the king merely rules over a physical kingdom for a short period of time under the sovereignty of God. He does not rule over the spiritual kingdom as a human God with his own priesthood. This is just silly. We see this today, don't we? There's a little kingdom over in the Asian countries, North Korea, in which a little guy is worshipped as a king, and he has his inscriptions. He proclaims himself to be divine. But that's just plain silly. It doesn't matter what you call yourself. The emperor, the king, the president. If you think you're God and you want people to worship you, you are completely wrong. Because there is no human gods. There is only one God. So Jesus says to them, give to the king what he is due, but give to God his due. Jesus lifts the discussion above taxes, which the people wanted to hear about. And the spies wanted to trap him in. But he lifts it above the discussion of taxes to consider the relationship between God and man. The Bible teaches that the government has authority, but it's ordained by God. That the government should be respected. But only as it validates God. Our citizenship, you see, is in heaven, which means we are aliens and strangers in this land. But that is not an excuse to ignore our earthly responsibilities as earthly citizens. We are to pay the tax and give to Caesar what is rightfully Caesar's. But since we have been stamped with with an image of God upon ourselves, our greatest allegiance is to 
God. He has the right to command us in our lives, not only as citizens of heaven, but as good citizens of earth. And that is that he will be glorified above all else. We understand that God ordains governments, and he does so for the purposes of providing a safe haven for an orderly society because men are sinners, because men are sinners and need to be kept under control so a government is necessary. However, however, this teaching, this teaching of Jesus clearly leaves his enemies frustrated, as we learn in verse 20, 26. And they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. And being amazed, they marveled at his answer. And they became silent. They just shut their mouths. They had nothing to say. His answer was direct and complete. There was nothing you could add to it to make it better or worse. Not one note could you make that song any better. Right, Mozart? It didn't give them any grounds to incriminate him. So they were totally amazed. His answer shut them up, and they were astonished by his answer. Blown away! He'd gotten the better of them. His answer was simple, yet complex. His answer said that the Roman government had the lawful right to impose taxes, justified by the privileges it gave its citizenry. But that didn't make Caesar God. Only God is God. Well, how do we apply this to our lives today? I'd like to begin my applications by giving you a warning. To be on guard for the religious, wicked people around us. They're everywhere. These evil, wicked religious people are trying to put you under their theological thumb by twisting and turning the clear word of God. Most of us here unfortunately, are unable to debate and argue with these tricksters. So my advice is for you to leave it to those who have been trained to do so, but for you to keep on learning, keep on in the process so that you are able to defend yourselves. But you must stay on guard for those people are everywhere around us. And they, if you fall to their tricks, will rob you of your peace and your joy and your Freedoms. Beware of anyone who uses the term social justice. That's a wedge or a hammer to get you to do what they want. Be a Berean. Compare what you've heard by others to what is actually said in Scripture. For only the Word of God has authority in your life. Now some will come with flattering, flattery and tricks. They will sound really good, they might even be really neat. You know, cool people. But beware, don't accept them just because they look and act the part. Beware. Secondly, beware of compromise in your own life. In theological terms, compromise is a dirty word. It might not be in politics, but in theology, it's a dirty word. If you are compromising on the truth... You're headed in the wrong direction, for Jesus said, thy word is truth. My word's not truth. Andy's words are not truth. Mother Teresa's words aren't truth. Billy Graham's words aren't truth. Joel Osteen's words aren't truth. It's the word of God that is true and will not fail or be found void. 
Never, ever, 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 can I say that enough? Compromise on the word of truth. Jesus showed his enemies and their supposed strength of being flexible and compromising as their Achilles heel in their willingness to compromise for financial gain. They lost what was most important, their relationship with God. They exchanged their position with God for monetary gain. They exchanged their approval of God for the approval of Caesar. For it was all about the Benjamins. Show me the money. If you go to a church that starts asking you for money, that should be a red flag, a warning sign. Something's wrong. God can afford to fund his ministries. He doesn't need to beat the sheep over the head so that the pastor can live a luxurious lifestyle or so that they can have gold faucets in the bathroom. When it's all about the money, any church or any pastor, watch out. Now, second, thirdly, please understand that Jesus never denies that politics are unimportant. They are important. We're to be involved in politics as citizens of the United States. But he distinguishes between the authority of the government and the authority of God. The authority of the government is limited. The authority of God is unlimited. Thank you. It's up to us to discern the difference between the realm that God has ordained and given over to governmental power and that which is not theirs. There's a red line that can easily be crossed. We're seeing that happen over and over in our country today. If you get my emails, I've warned you about the police state which is being imposed upon us as American citizens People who are supposed to protect and serve are instead breaking into people's homes and killing them. Citizens who have done no wrong. This should never happen. It's an abuse of governmental power. It's not limited government. It's unlimited government. Beware. Be on guard. Finally, let me urge you to teach what the Bible says. Not your opinions, and not your personal convictions. I find that religious people are often astonished. They often marvel when they get a direct answer from Scripture about some issue because it's so new and refreshing to them. You see, all that they hear in the pulpits and in the religious arena around us today are personal opinions, personal convictions, and not the clear word of God. Teach the Bible. Finally, our worship is due only to God, not to some political figure in Washington or in North Korea in whatever town it is that there's their capital or in Rome. Our worship is due only to God because he is great and powerful and loving and merciful and sovereign. Let us worship him together and serve him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. We're thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ who made things so clear. Help us, Father, to remember we have been put on planet Earth to worship him, to serve him, to love him, to grow in him. Help us, Father, not to be deterred 
by other agendas. Help us, Father, to remember what we are here for, to be his disciple, to bring others to know him and to love him. Help us to do this, even in the difficulties that we experience today in our culture and society. Lord, we can still do this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.